Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. At this very moment, TrekQuest adventurer John Davis is walking, biking, paddling, and horseback riding 6,000 miles through a chain of mountain ranges that stretches like a spine across North America, from the Sierra Madres of Mexico through the Rockies of the American West up into Canada. He started this winter in the Sonoran Desert we share with our southern neighbor and has been heading northward for months. He'll cross many of our most treasured national parks like Yellowstone and Grand Canyon, the ones that tourists love, but this his trek is no sightseeing adventure. Davis and his TrekWest partners along the route are advocating for what they call landscape connectivity on a continental scale. That's how Chip Ward, writing in The Nation, describes John Davis's journey. He's drawing attention to an ambitious project of the Wildlands Network, the creation of four continental wildways, large protected corridors of land running coast to coast and north to south throughout Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, providing enough room to roam to protect wildlife and people for the long term. And uh, Mr. Ward uh, described uh, John Davis as, at this very moment, uh, taking his uh, journey. But he's paused long enough, I believe, in Lander, Wyoming, to spend the hour with us on Access Utah. We're grateful for that. Uh, John Davis joins us. Welcome to the program. So you're, uh, I don't know, approximately in the middle of this. This is some six or 7,000 miles. Uh, how's the journey been so far? It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. I've I've been uh, ably assisted and led by many conservation groups along the way, and I've had great wildlife experiences and seen some amazing country. So it's been a really rewarding and exciting journey so far. Including some country in Utah. Yes, quite a bit. I spent a good deal of time in the southern Utah Canyon country, Grand Staircase Escalade National Monument, and the proposed Raider Canyonlands National Monument, and up on the Aquarius Plateau, out of the Green River. I had a, had a wonderful time in Utah. By the way, do you support a Greater Canyonlands concept? I absolutely do. I think that the proposed Greater Canyonlands National Monument is a wonderful idea, and I really hope the presidential administration and other elected officials will quickly get behind it. And why do you, why do you think that's a great idea? A big variety of reasons, really. For one, I think that the, the ecology and wildlife of Utah need more space. Um, Utah is blessed with a a rich array of public lands, but most of these are not yet fully protected as wilderness or national parks or monuments. And in order to really ensure uh, protection of wildlife species and their freedom to roam, we, we need to we need more protection areas. And national monuments are a very good way of doing it. And also, Utah's economy depends heavily on, on nature-based tourism. Uh, so I think a greater Canyon Lands National Monument will be a real economic boon to the state. So this, your journey is human-powered. You're walking, biking, horseback riding, and uh, and floating. Uh, and you've, I guess, you've done each of these so far in your journey. That's correct. It is a, it is a human or muscle-powered journey. Uh, the, the the forward progress is is, is human-powered or muscle-powered. I do occasionally get in cars with colleagues to go to meetings on the side. For instance, I'm going later today to Salt Lake City for the Outdoor Retailers Convention, so I'll be in Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, for a few days, and that involves a car. But the actual traverse of the Rocky Mountains is indeed muscle-powered. Hmm. And by the way, you'll be at the King's English Bookshop uh, for an event on Friday evening, 7 p.m. You mentioned that. That's right. Thanks for the reminder. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, have you encountered problems along the way in your journey? Well, when I'm on a bicycle, inevitably I get flat tires. And that's nothing very serious. It's just annoying, and it certainly slows me down. Um, I've had some difficult weather, including some severe thunderstorms when I was in Utah, much more than, than I expected. And, and, and in fact, I would say of all the states I've crossed so far or in the past in the West, Utah is the one that throws the most surprises at me. Uh, I got myself clipped out as I was going up one long canyon uh, a couple months ago. I've, I encountered some pretty serious thunderstorms and high winds. I blew down my tent several times. And, of course, the, the heat and the dryness of you know, Utah can be challenging as well. And I've just been, the last couple of weeks, I've been in southern Wyoming's Red Desert, uh, which this time of year is quite difficult to traverse because there's very little water. It's even harder to find water in the Red Desert than it is in much of the Utah desert. So, certainly there have been some challenges along the way. 
And you're uh, you're mostly in some high country. You're traversing the spine of the continent uh, as much as you can. Yes, yeah, but as as you probably know, continental divide actually divides literally in southern Wyoming and creates a, what's called the, the Great Divide Basin within the Red Desert. So my journey is indeed primarily in mountains, but in southern Wyoming, I've been in desert for almost two weeks, really quite hot, dry country. And earlier journey, I was in the Sonoran Desert, in the state of Sonora, Mexico, and in Arizona. And some of the desert and grassland areas around on either side of the Rocky Mountains are as important as the mountains themselves. So when we talk about protecting the spine of the continent or protecting a western wildlife, I hope we have in mind protecting the high country, spectacular alpine country, but also some of the deserts and grasslands on, on either side. You did a similar journey in the east, started in Florida, ended up in uh, in Canada. How do the two journeys compare? I'm learning a lot from each, and some of the lessons are the same, or at least similar. Some are slightly different. In the, in the east, uh, landscapes are more heavily settled by people. They've been settled for longer, typically, and they're more badly fragmented by roads and other developments. So you create an eastern wildway or an Appalachian Wildway, as I was promoting during that journey two years ago, that will require a fair amount of active restoration, and it will also require providing private landowners with very strong uh, incentives, financial and otherwise, practice and good stewardship. In the West, there's a much larger public land space, so a Western wildway could largely, but not completely, be created on public land. But here in the West, also, it will be very important to private landowners with good incentives for stewardship of their land. So as Chip Ward uh, pointed out in his article in The Nation, uh, you're not just on a sightseeing tour, you're drawing attention to the need for landscape connectivity and uh, these continental wildways. Uh, if you go to the website of uh, Wildlands Network, they talk about what they're calling a, a mass extinction. That's one of the problems to, we're trying to address here? Absolutely. We're in the, um, by, according to scientists, we're in the sixth great extinction episode of life on Earth. And this, and this one is unprecedented and worse than the others in that it is caused by one species. It's caused by us. Human beings are causing a massive state of extinction. The you know, estimates range widely, but we may be, without even knowing it, Terminating dozens of species a day, and most of them are small species that you wouldn't even notice, like beetles and in rainforest canopies and so forth. Uh, but all of these vital parts of life on Earth, they all have intrinsic value, they all have natural beauty. And so our estimation of other life forms is, is foolish, it's short sighted, and it's also just morally wrong. Mm. And part of what we are proposing through Trek West through advocating for Western wildlife and other continental wildlife is an antidote to this extinction crisis, a way of stopping the extinction crisis and restoring and protecting wildlife habitat. We get into uh, some of those plans, uh, the ambitious plans, and I'll, I'll ask you if the, you think this, well, obviously you think it's doable, but it's, it's quite ambitious. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, something called trophic cascade, these these uh, these species that are reduced or go extinct or leave an area, that has an effect on the remaining species. Yeah, and I'll take an example from, from each of my tracks. In the east, where I trekked long distance two, two years ago, promoting eastern wildlife, the cougar is a native top predator, as it is in the West also. Um, but in the East, like the West, it's been eliminated in all but a tiny fraction of the original range. There's a small population of cougars, the same animal, panther or puma. In South Florida, elsewhere in the East, the, the cougar is absent. It was exterminated. And partly as a result of that, deer are unnaturally abundant now in the East. And they are over-browsing the eastern deciduous forest. And we are losing our wildflowers and our songbirds and even salamander populations in the ground. And this is, this is not due to this one factor, but it is partly due to the over-unnaturally high numbers of deer because of cougars, their main predator, being eliminated. Here in the West, 
Cougars are still doing okay in many areas, thankfully, but wolves have been eradicated from both of the West. And this is having similar consequences for Western ecosystems. Um, Aspen are in decline in many areas. And this is probably partly a consequence of overbrowsing by milk, and that in turn is a consequence of their predators, wolves, being eliminated. But trophic cascade is, is a shorthand or perhaps even a poetic way of saying that when you eliminate key parts of an ecosystem, particularly the top regulatory predators, then things start to unravel. You have cascading harmful effects. What effect does uh, climate change have, if, if any, on, on the, the problem of uh, not having room to roam? Well, it's, climate change just I think, heightens the need for these, these wildlife corridors, these habitat connections, because with a warming climate, many animals will move northward or upward to meet their uh, habitat needs, to track their climate envelopes. So I think climate just magnifies, or climate chaos uh, magnifies the importance of, of wildlife corridors and habitat connectivity. And it's also leading the extinction crisis. That is, there, there are many scientists are saying that partly because of the climatic disruption caused by carbon emissions and deforestation, the extinction rate is going to soar to even higher levels than in so I think that the climate crisis adds urgency to the need to protect and restore wildlife activity. We're talking with um, John Davis, who is uh, on a, uh, I was calling Trek West. He's uh, he started in Mexico. He's traveling some six thousand miles through a chain of mountain ranges uh, that uh, stretches up uh, through uh, the United States through North America, and he's uh, going to end in Canada. And uh, this is uh, an attempt to draw attention to uh, the ambitious project of the Wildlands Network, creation of continental wildways, the need for landscape connectivity. We'll talk more about this with uh, John Davis. Uh, following our commentary, we're going to move our commentary earlier in the program, Gina, Dave, Gina uh, Wickwar uh, next. And uh, during the commentary, we'll... Uh, uh, Mr. Davis, try to establish a little better connection here. So a commentary and then more with uh, John Davis. Thank you. Utah writer Gina Wickwar. I will succumb. The baby arriveth and the baby is a boy. I was ardently hoping it would be a girl so that this primogenitor thingy could be laid to rest once and for all. But alas, it will take another time and another baby to throw that archaic silliness onto the dustbin of history. Notwithstanding the gender of the little one, you have to admit it is very progressive for the present queen to have finally jettisoned the tradition of monarchial primogeniture at this moment in history. We can surmise that she is more than aware she's on the throne only because a certain bachelor king ran off with a certain American divorcee, leaving the throne to the next male heir her father, George VI. And because George and the Queen Mother produced only girls, Elizabeth II was perforce crowned queen when her father died in 1952. This had to set her thinking. We Americans have always had a hard time coming to grips with the concept that only the first son is eligible to inherit a father's wealth and property, and if that first son died, the goodies went to the next son if there was one. When there weren't any brothers but just sisters, the estate or inheritance was entailed to a close male relative, often leaving the widow and daughters in dire poverty, unless the male inheritor was a generous and kind guy. Many weren't. I, for one, have learned a lot of this English law from Jane Austen's novels, which seem to abound in male entailment and large numbers of impoverished daughters. I've always been a bit disturbed by this primogenitor theme. For me, it marred what are exquisitely written stories. I simply could not get my head around such a clearly unfair and chauvinistic legalism. Tocqueville, when he visited this country, lauded the fact we didn't adhere to such an archaic custom. Rather, he saw our abolition of primogeniture and entail laws in private property inheritance as a great step forward, since he believed it resulted in a more rapid dissolution of property and forced the landed gentry to search for their wealth outside the family. This, he thought, would more quickly lead to the country's democratization. 
And it has, of course. Female heirs are common in this country and always have been. Very few families leap over the firstborn daughter to hand over the reins of business or industry to a younger male. Politically, we have more women than ever serving in government, in the Senate, governor's offices, the cabinet, the judiciary, and in boardrooms and corporations. And quite likely, probably sooner than later, we'll have a woman president. It would be something akin to bestowing the monarchy on the daughter, even when she has a younger brother. This is Gina Wickwar. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, it's international pop music. Songs with mainstream appeal from Africa, the Caribbean, Asia, and Europe. Un principiante che non aveva mai amato un po' distante. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for World Pop, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, they're named after a genteel style of Stetson hats worn by serious bluegrassers, and they play hardcore, deeply and richly traditional music that will take you back to the early days of such bands as Connie and Babe, Vernon Ray, and the Stanley Brothers. I'm Dave Higgs, and Colorado's Open Road will be singing, shouting, and stomping live on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are talking with John Davis. He is on what's calling Trek West, and uh, he's traveling from Mexico uh, to Canada, currently in Wyoming. This is a human-powered trip on horseback and uh, boats and, uh, uh, and on foot and on bike, and he is uh, highlighting an ambitious project of the Wildlands Network, creation of uh, continental wildways, large protected corridors of land running coast to coast and north to south through Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, uh, addressing problems of mass extinction, climate change, and a lack of uh, room to roam for key species. Uh, Of course, this will uh, take government and private effort. He's uh, drawing attention to this, and we've reached him in Wyoming uh, John Davis will be at the King's English Bookshop on Friday evening at 7 o'clock with filmmaker Ed George. They're presenting a slideshow and film preview of the full Trek West journey. And he's also at the uh, Outdoor Retailers Association. I think, uh, John Davis, later on, what, today or tomorrow? I think I'm to speak to the Outdoor Retailers tonight, Tom. Okay. Um, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us today. That does sound like a little better connection, so we appreciate uh, making that switch during our listening to Gina Wickwar's uh, commentary. I wonder uh, you tell us some of the other problems with with uh, closing off of species, um, lack of room to roam, the lack of connectivity. One that I've been reading about is uh, lack of genetic diversity. I guess you get the islands of a species and they don't have room to, to travel. That's right, Tom. You understand these issues quite well, and you're summarizing them very nicely. With small, isolated populations, populations of animals that are isolated by uh, roads or agribusiness operations or cities, you get genetic inbreeding. You have too, too few individuals breeding amongst each other, and gradually genetic diversity is lost, and then those populations become much more vulnerable to um, Random, random influences like uh, tornadoes or major storms of other sorts or uh, human impacts that then may exterminate that small diminished population. It's very important that animals have healthy enough, big enough populations with enough g- genetic intermixing that they have the genetic diversity they need to respond to changes in their environment. And the, and the single factor in our country and in many countries that most fragments habitat and divides population, um, separates populations from one another is roads. And of course, we all use roads. All, 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 all people in this country use roads, depend on them. We drive cars. That's how we get around. That's how we connect with each other. But paradoxically, roads have the opposite effect for most other species in our country. They divide 
they they separate other animals one from another. They divide populations. They fragment habitats. So, one of the solutions we are suggesting along Trek West is that we outfit or retrofit our roads with wildlife crossings, bridges over or tunnels under roads that animals can find and then safely cross the roads so that their populations are not divided, so they can range widely to find food and cover and mates and so forth. And we've we've found that these work, do we? I, I'm I'm familiar with at least uh, some of these uh, near Heber City in uh, in Utah. You you see, um, I, I can't remember whether this is tunnel under or uh, or bridges over for wildlife. What is the science telling us? Science is telling us that the wildlife crossing structures work very well. Um, along Route 260, which bisects the Mogollon Rim in Arizona and is a key wildlife corridor between the Gila Wilderness and, and Grand Canyon National Park. About 20 wildlife crossings have been put in. They were put in partly because so many elk were being hit by motorists that, it, uh, of course, many of the most of the elk were di- were getting killed by these collisions, and often people were imperiled or hurt, or at least their, at the at the very least their cars were badly damaged. So about 20 wildlife crossings were either put in place or existing structures were retrofitted. You don't always have to put in new structures. Sometimes you just modify a span over a creek or something to make it more wildlife friendly. This was done in about 20 places along uh, the major road crossing the Mogollon Rim. And collisions are down between humans and, and elk by more than 90% since these wildlife crossings were put in place. So they're saving wild animal and human lives and Within a decade or so, they more than pay for the for themselves. Typically, these wildlife structures. The most famous ones in North America are those up in Banff National Park, where there are some wide-ranging animals like grizzly bears and wolves, and elk and cougars that were getting killed on the road bisect the major road bisecting the park. They put in some big crossing structures, including bridges. It took a little while for the animals to find them and learn to use them. Once they found them. Uh, they began. The animals began using these wildlife crossings regularly. So they are quite effective. They more than pay for themselves over time, and they save both human and wild animal lives. Now I'm picturing grizzly bears going over these bridges. I'd, you probably don't see it. They probably do it when you're, you know, nighttime or something. But. True, but there are hundreds, probably by now thousands, of good photographs of animals crossing these structures mm. because they put the biologists put out remote cameras that are triggered by motion. And they get they they have most every animal of concern up in Alberta has been photographed crossing these structures: grizzly bears, wolves, cougars, elk, so on. Now, another example I would notice um, east of Kanab in southern Utah, the, the uh, mule deer have historically crossed from the Ponsagan Plateau to uh, Buckskin Mountain, going across. The, uh, I think it's Highway Nine down there, if I'm remembering correctly. But they're going between Arizona and Utah seasonally. And hundreds a year were being hit. So thankfully, uh, and to its credit, the Utah Department of Transportation and Fish and Game and then and conservation groups and sporting groups got together and designed and raised money to put in some crossing structures. I think there's seven or eight of them. And they are uh, tunnels. They're small tunnels, but they're they're open enough and wide enough so that mule deer do not feel frightened by the, the closeness of the space and there's careful fencing to funnel the deer toward the tunnel. So now and the, as during the twice annual migration, mule deer will be able to go under the road rather than risking crossing it and so, so often getting killed in the process. Now, of special concern are uh, so-called keystone species. What, uh, what are we talking about here? Well, again, these are often the animals that uh, you might say trigger trophic cascades or the removal of which triggers trophic cascades. So examples of keystone species, wolves, because they help keep um, ungulate or um, browsing animal numbers in check. They keep numbers of deer and elk and so forth in check so that the forest and grasslands are not over-browsed or over-grazed. Cougar, especially in the east, are a keystone predator um, helping keep deer numbers in check. But there are also uh, animals smaller in size and not necessarily predatory that play keystone roles, including the beaver. The beaver is a keystone species in much of North America. By its dam building and lodge building activities, it creates wetlands and ponds, good for fish, uh, amphibians, dragonflies, and many other animals. And in drier parts of the West, prairie, do- prairie dogs are a keystone species. Prairie dogs 
um, enrich the vegetative community. I mean, immediately around a prairie dog town, it may look like it's been heavily grazed, and it is because they trim the grass to uh, allow themselves to see the predators. But they tend to, on a larger scale, they tend to enrich the diversity of grasslands and other vegetative communities. And their burrows serve as home or refuge or shelter for many other animals, uh, from from small insects to to large snakes. So prairie dogs are an, another example of a keystone species or a species that plays a larger role in an ecosystem uh, than you would expect. Uh, it has a disproportionately large influence. John Davis is my guest for the hour. He is walking, biking, paddling, and horseback riding some 6,000 miles uh, from uh, Mexico to uh, Canada. And uh, this is to highlight an ambitious project of the Wildlands Network, creation of four continental wildways. Uh, He's drawing attention to the need for uh, what's called landscape connectivity, and this on a continental scale. And you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Uh, if you have an opinion on this, love to have you uh, weighed in, uh, express support or uh, opposition to the plan, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can comment on our Facebook page. And by the way, on our post on our Facebook page, Utah Public Radio, uh, Jeremy McCumber has liked this post. Thank you very much, Jeremy. And uh, Kevin Murphy has shared this uh, post. So thank you very much. You can comment on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Uh, and uh, John Davis will uh, be at the Outdoor Retailers Association uh, show tonight. Um, and he'll also be uh, presenting, along with filmmaker Ed George, a slideshow and film preview of a film called The Full Trek West Journey. Uh, that'll be at the King's English Bookshop, and that's Friday evening at 7 o'clock, your chance to interact with uh, John Davis. So, John Davis, uh, you mentioned some of these keystone species, and of course, as you well know, uh, some of these species are have become conflict points in this whole debate. And uh, I wonder if you have seen examples of, uh, of where some of these conflicts have been successfully resolved. For example, the whole debate about the wolf. Uh, in southern Utah, there's, there are significant numbers of people who, um, so far removed from uh, seeing uh, prairie dogs as a keystone species, they see them as a pest. That's right. And, and uh, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings about wildlife in this country, and I think there are a lot of fears that really are not well-founded. Many people are afraid of, of being attacked by wolves. The likelihood of being attacked by a wolf is infinitesimally small. They almost never attack people. Uh, even bears seldom attack people. Cougars do once in a great while, but very, very seldom. The, the risk from all the native carnivores in North America combined is much less than the risk from domestic dogs. You have a much better chance of being attacked by a domestic dog than by all the native carnivores in North America combined. In terms of health threats, uh, in my opinion, ticks are a much greater health threat and, and are now carrying uh, quite an array of diseases, including especially in the East, Lyme disease. Um, the problems with the spread of Lyme disease tend to be worsened by the elimination of predators. So in the East, we would be, we, uh, we would be healthier and safer if we restored cougars because they would help keep down numbers of the carriers of, of Lyme disease. So, and then in turn, you know, in terms of dislike of prairie dogs, I think that too is very unfortunate and based on misunderstandings. I don't think prairie dogs are any sort of serious threat to the livestock industry or to agriculture in general. There, there have been a lot of per- misunderstandings perpetuated through the generations, unfortunately. But I, I would go beyond um, countering the arguments that these species are, are vexing and say, I think that we Americans and Mexicans and Canadians have a moral obligation to share our land. I don't think that the North American continent here is here only for people. I think we have a moral obligation, a duty, to share it with the full range of native species and to learn to live with these species, even if they, they can occasionally be troubling. Uh, Chip Ward, in his article in The Nation that I've been referencing, um, he, he describes your journey. And he talks about a kind of a local to him, I believe he lives in this area, Escalante River Watershed Partnership. And he describes a meeting 
and I think would be typical in many areas of the West, where everybody's coming together to try to uh, solve their uh, Tamarisk uh, problem. Um, but the but they're sort of tiptoeing around the elephant in the room, or maybe I should say the the cow in the room. Um, they're they're not addressing directly. Uh, the problem of uh, cattle grazing in riparian areas because they have ranchers in the area. I wonder if you talk a bit about that conflict point and if you've seen successful resolution of that. Yeah, it's 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 one of the toughest issues in conservation in North America. The, I think the unfortunate truth is that most of us in this country and in Mexico and Canada have made our livings from one way or the other, directly or indirectly, exploiting the land. I don't think it does us any good to single out ranchers or loggers or miners for diminishing the biological diversity and wildness of our continent. We are all responsible. We are all culpable for diminishing our lands and waters, and we need to face that and work together to find solutions. And yes, I have seen some good solutions. Livestock do have harmful impacts on riparian areas and on wildlife. I don't think there's any point in denying that. But again, I also don't think there's any advantage in blaming ranchers. They're trying, they're hardworking, good people trying to make a living like the rest of us. So what I think we need to do is work together to find better ways um, to make our livelihoods. And I have seen examples of ranching that are quite wildlife friendly. Uh, For instance, I was at High Lonesome Ranch in western Colorado a month or so ago where a small collection of owners, very entrepreneurial sorts, are continuing livestock grazing, but with lowered numbers of livestock. Very, um, They have cows, but lower numbers. They keep the cows away from the riparian areas, and then they make part of the, part of the living for the ranch uh, from sporting uh, events. They, they, uh, they offer guided hunts and fishing and mountain biking, and they're they're catering to heritage and nature-based tourism as well as continuing livestock ranching. And I think that's a promising way to look, to reduce the numbers of livestock on the land, particularly on public lands, and then try to find other ways for landowners to compensate for the lower numbers of, of livestock. So there, and there's, there are some very good examples of people who are doing wildlife-friendly farming and ranching in the West, and those should really be studied and promoted. You quote uh, in a blog uh, on uh, the uh, TrekWest website, which, by the way, is trekwest.org. I think this is your visit to uh, High Lonesome Ranch. You quote Tom Butler, who said, conservation success stories are essentially love stories. That's right. Uh, Tom is one of my closest friends. We've been working together in conservation for 30 years now, roughly. And he did a beautiful book uh, with the Foundation for Deep Ecology called Wildlands Philanthropy, which is a series of about 50 stories of private lands secured for wildlife by the generosity of individuals and families and companies. Uh, and Wildlands Philanthropy is, a, is one of the noblest traditions in America and one we should encourage. And it's practiced by many land trusts, including the Nature Conservancy. It basically means using private wealth to save wildlands. And I think people do that because they love these places. I'm out here because I love the West. I love to see wildlife. I love hiking and paddling and so forth. And why, in the end, we can can trot out all sorts of ecosystem service and utilitarian arguments for saving wild places. But in the end, we will will save wild places because we love them and because we want to pass them on intact to our children and we want to continue to enjoy the natural beauty in those places. We're talking with John Davis. He is on what he's calling Trek West. He's uh, walking roughly up the spine of the continent in the West. He did a similar journey earlier in the East. He's promoting something called uh, landscape connectivity on a continental scale, promoting a project of the Wildlands Network, creation of four continental wildways, which are large protected corridors of land proposed, running coast to coast, north to south, throughout Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, providing enough room to roam to protect wildlife and people for the long term. That's how they describe it. And uh, we do have a caller on the line, Mike, in Cache Valley. Mike, glad you called. Welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've got an echo here, so I have to listen to my voice twice. <laughs> oh, is, but, your, is your radio on? No, it isn't. Okay, then so we, we have a problem. Down, it's, 
Okay. Uh, problem the phone. Yeah. If you can just sort of play through the, the pain there a little bit, uh, bear with us. Uh, go okay. ahead with your question or comment. Well, actually, it just went away. Thanks. Um, I, I had a question. I was, I was listening to your guest there um, talking about keystone species. And you know, I'm a sportsman. I enjoy the outdoors. I, uh, I support conservation groups. Um, like the uh, Mule Deer Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, uh, Pheasants Forever, and spent a lot of, I've spent time in these programs uh, just helping with uh, different uh, uh, projects to help different species, uh, such as pheasants, Mule Deer, and Rocky Mountain Elk. I I guess a question for your guest, I have a question for your guest as far as how does the human, the man, the hunter, fit into his keystone species? Well, first I would say that um, conservation and hunting and other sporting activities are, are quite compatible. And most cons- many, many conservationists are hunters or anglers. And most, most of, as you know, most of our public lands are open to hunting and fishing. So... I don't think there's any conflict between um, sporting events like hunting and fishing and land conservation. I think they go, in fact, I think they complement one another. Now, the question about humans as a keystone predator, um, I guess I, thinking somewhat historically here, I guess I would say I suspect that human beings were a positive keystone predator in times past. I'm not sure we're playing that role very well right now. And um, I think I think that the way most hunting in our country is managed doesn't does not tend to replicate or mimic uh, the hunting of, of predators like wolves and cougars and so forth because we tend to take out the big and strong animals we tend to take out the trophy animals whereas predators like cougars and wolves and so forth will tend to call the weak from the herd so um, I would urge all of us who enjoy the chase to consider instead of going after the trophy animals going after some of the weaker members and that may not seem quite as exciting but i think it would allow us to be um more of a uh, more of a natural predator yeah yeah and i understand that uh and things have changed in this modern age and evolved to where you're um you know the, the different states like here in utah you know you have state that have uh, biologists uh, um, that try to, I think, control. You know, there's different uh, units in the state that are uh, designated as trophy units. Uh, It's big money to sell their permits. The state actually has auctions that that they give the permits uh, to the conservation groups to auction them off that, that raises money for, uh, you know, the state. It, it goes in a general fund. I don't know where it goes for sure, but it's supposed to go back to help wildlife, to, to help uh, enhance, uh, you know, the, uh, as far as uh, help the wildlife. Uh, I'm... I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but it to help enhance the, uh, um, you know, the land and and the for for winter range and and, and and things of that nature. Now, I guess there is there there is a controversy there because you talk about maybe we should go after the weaker, um, the, the younger or the weak, which does not happen. I mean, let's be realistic, you know. Right. Most of your hunters and sportsmen, they're 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 there to take a trophy animal. You know, it's right. all about myself. Yeah, I like to hunt animals with a big rack, but I've also been raised that to not waste and and to be. Um, you know, I take care of all my own meat. I I process it myself. The freezer's full of elk and antelope, mule deer, and I I don't waste it. But I also am I'm going after the trophy animal as well. So the weaker animal, you know, I, I, they probably die in the winter or by predators. I get, and I guess another thing I'm getting at is, I think 
myself and many hunters in, in my uh, this area that I'm, you know, uh, that I have uh, interaction with, they feel that we should be the main predator as far as conservation goes with wildlife, not wolves or, or mountain lions. I mean, I love to see them as, as much as anybody. I love the outdoors. I love seeing wildlife in its natural state. But that there, there seems to be a controversy there. Oh, there certainly is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike, uh, thanks, thanks for the call. Some, some interesting points there. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'm sorry I got so long. Oh no, I appreciate no, you no problem. Me the time. Yeah, no problem. Some interesting points. We'll we'll have uh, John Davis respond to to some of those, and uh, you can call just as Mike did uh, with your question or comment one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxis at gmail dot com. John Davis, uh, response to uh, some of those uh, subsequent points that Mike made. Mike made a, the good point, the important point that. I think this is what he was getting at, if I understood correctly, that the the funding for wildlife conservation programs and for land protection programs sometimes comes partly from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. So paradoxically, uh, wildlife conservation programs may depend on the sale of essentially those trophy hunting permits. I think he's right about that, and I think that's a situation that we ought to study and quite possibly reform. I think there, we ought to be funding wildlife conservation programs, not just through the sale of hunting and fishing licenses, and especially not just through the sale of these very high-end hunting permits, which very few of us, by the way, could afford. I mean, some people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for a permit to hunt one trophy animal. I certainly could not afford that. I don't think most Americans could. Um, but we should, but that but those high fees go toward wildlife programs, as Mike pointed out. So one suggestion I would make is let's diversify the funding base for wildlife programs. I, as a hiker and paddler and mountain biker and so forth, would, would very happily pay an excise tax on the gear I buy. And I think outdoor, in fact, I think I'll probably say this tonight at the Outdoor Retailers Association. I think that the the makers of outdoor gear should support putting a tax on the, the equipment they sell, the equipment I buy, that goes into wildlife and land conservation programs. That way we diversify and, and enlarge the funding base for wildlife programs so it's not so dependent on trophy hunting permits. We're going to take another break, and uh, we are talking with John Davis. He is on what he calls Trek West. You can find out more about that at trekwest.org. More on the Wildlands Network at wildlandsnetwork.org. Wildlands Network is proposing landscape connectivity on a continental scale, four continental wildways. We're going to talk a little bit more in depth about those when we come back following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, presenting Opera Fest and the International Opera Finals Competition, July 31st. Features famous opera highlights performed by ensembles, soloists, and orchestra. Competition winner heads to Italy. Details at utahfestival.org. And by the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Love Labors Lost with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. And we're talking with uh, adventurer John Davis. He's on what he calls Trek West. He is walking, biking, paddling, and horseback riding some 6,000 miles. He started in Mexico. He'll end in Canada. Right now he's in Wyoming. And we're glad that he's taken an hour to spend with us. Later tonight, uh, he'll be in Salt Lake City with the Outdoor Retailers Association. Uh, and on Friday evening at 7 o'clock, he and filmmaker Ed George will present a slideshow and film preview of the full Trek West journey. That's at 7 p.m. at the King's English uh, Bookshop on Friday night. You're welcome to join this conversation. We have another five or six minutes left for your call, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email at upraxis at gmail.com or on our UPR, or Utah Public Radio, Facebook page. Uh, 
I wonder, uh, before we, uh, I want to have you describe uh, in brief these uh, wild ways. This is an ambitious project, but uh, uh, there, there are a couple of... Uh, perhaps uh, things in opposition, and I'm talking about public versus private, and I'm, I'm guessing it's going to take both, right, to establish these, and uh, the scope. Um, most people who get involved are, are concerned about their backyard, the, the place that they love, uh, how to get them thinking on a continental scale. Excellent points, Tom, and yes, want to reiterate, a Western wildway, an Eastern wildway, any continental wildways will depend on careful conservation of public lands and good private land stewardship. There's no wildway in the continent that we can create without providing good incentives for private landowners to do the right thing. Private lands will be very much a part of it. And in creating continental wildways, we're not necessarily talking about major landscape changes. We're talking about, especially in the West, we're largely talking about conserving what we already have and then, re and indeed, restoring some degraded areas and restoring some missing species. But thankfully, there's a lot of public land, a lot of wild land in the American West, particularly in the Rocky Mountains. So it's largely a matter of keeping it intact and then putting safe wildlife crossings on major roads and giving private landowners incentives to practice good stewardship. Uh, so uh, tell me a little bit about these uh, the four main continental wildways that are proposed. There's west and east, and then there's a couple. Uh, these are running north-south, and there's another couple running east-west? Yeah, the ones that have been described, especially by the great conservationist Dave Foreman in his book Rewilding North America, are the eastern or Atlantic Appalachian, the one I traversed two years ago, uh, the western or spine of the continent or Rocky Mountain, where I am now, the Pacific Crest and Coast Wildway, which would depend on the, the rel relatively few remaining, unfortunately, intact parts of the West Coast of the United States, but also the Pacific Coast ranges, and and then, of course, extend well up into Canada and even to Alaska. The Boreal Forest Wildway would go across Alaska, Canada, and parts of the northern United States. That would be east-west running. And then some of us have suggested that in addition to those great four continental wildways, we explore possibilities for a north-south running wildway through the Great Plains, which is a sparsely inhabited, uh, relatively wild part of the country, and then east-west along the Gulf Coast from Florida to Texas. So then we'd have, if we, if we were successful, then we could have six continental wildways, which I think would do a terrific job of, of restoring and protecting our natural heritage. And would uh, the goal you would the hope would be if these are established to reduce these extinctions or reduce the rate? Is that one of the goals? Absolutely. I think if we were to in fact reconnect wildlife habitats in these areas, and and again practice good private land stewardship, and and practice good wildlife conservation in terms of of hunting and fishing practices, I think we would I think we would basically halt the extinction of large animals in North America. And I think, or forestall it, I shouldn't imply that many of them are going extinct right now, that uh, some have gone extinct in the past and, so, and many are endangered. I think we would prevent additional extinctions if we created these wildways. I think we would do a, uh, be taking some very big steps towards securing our natural heritage for biological diversity. And, of course, most of us, uh, we care about the, the lands that are next to us. We act locally. I guess that would, that's fine as long as you have enough people acting locally. You can, you can stitch together these wild ways. That's right, but you are pointing to or alluding to one of the big challenges of promoting continental wild ways. Most people practice conservation and try to help protect places that they, they know and love. That's perfectly natural. I do the same. When, when I'm back home in the Adirondacks in northern New York, I'm involved in protecting a very small local wildlife corridor, and that, that takes up much of my time. So I think it's perfectly natural for people to focus in their backyard to try to save their local areas. But somehow we need to tie together those efforts. If, if, if we could tie together all the local efforts, we'd have a continental wildway, and that's part of the job of the Wildlands Network is stitching together these very many small local uh, vital but by themselves not sufficient efforts. What are the biggest challenges remaining? I, I imagine in the east you would have uh, a bigger challenge with, uh, with cutting through some areas that are uh, already very, very populated, very closed off to wildlife. That is true. Although if you if you 
you know, just spend a minute and look at a Google map, you'll find that even in the east, there are big swaths of green, uh, which do represent forest in the east and are somewhat intact. They're certainly, they've been damaged by, uh, by heavy logging, clear-cutting uh, roads, mining, and so forth, but they, in many cases, are still forest and are still somewhat permeable to wildlife. So I think in, but in the east, we will indeed need to practice restoration, uh, replanting some denuded areas, especially along streams, which are always vital for wildlife movement. Streams east and west are vital not only for the aquatic species that live in them, but for the animals that travel along them or nest nest alongside them. Um, I think we, throughout the country, we'll need to put wildlife crossings on major roads in wildlife corridors. And I think we need to address problems like invasive species, invasion by exotic species, which tend to displace natives. And we certainly need to address the climate crisis. If we don't stop pumping carbon into the atmosphere, uh, many of our conservation efforts will be undone by catastrophic climate change. We've reached the end of our time. Uh, John Davis is on a trek west, is what he calls it. He's uh, walking, uh, paddling, uh, biking the spine of the continent, roughly. And uh, he's in Wyoming right now. He'll be uh, taking a side trip out to Salt Lake for some events. Outdoor Retail Association tonight on Friday, the King's English Bookshop. Uh, an event there, 7 o'clock uh, in the evening on Friday. By the way, you can go to trekwest.org and pull up a map of the journey. And uh, from there, he's, of course, heading north. He'll end up in uh, Canada. Uh, the other place you can go to find out about uh, some things we've been talking about today, wildlandsnetwork.org. Uh, John Davis, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. And uh, coming up tomorrow, hope you'll join us for a conversation about sugar. We'll be talking with writer uh, Rich Cohen. He's written an article in this uh, uh, month's uh, um, National Geographic about the outsized uh, effect sugar has had on our uh, past and our present. And the article is entitled Sugar Love, a Not-So-Sweet Story. That's tomorrow in the program. For producer uh, Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater Noon Tabernacle Concert Series, offering free Monday concerts June 10th through August 5th, featuring instrumental and vocal artists. Information at utahfestival.org. And Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan. KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thanks for listening to Utah Public Radio. It's 10 o'clock.